Well, everyone, uh, a very warm welcome to the Trist uh, on this sunny afternoon. Can I just introduce our speaker for today? Uh, Werner Jean-Rong is the Professor of Divinity at Glasgow University. He's the first uh, Catholic to hold that post since the Reformation, and he's the first ever lay person to hold that post since the foundation of the university. He's passionately committed to nurturing the relationship between the university and the city and between academic theologians and the church. Werner grew up on the French-German border and has lived and worked in the United States of America, Ireland, Sweden and Denmark before taking up his current post in Glasgow. His latest book, A Theology of Love, uh, which he tells me he spent about seven years researching, invites the reader to an in-depth examination of the potential of Christian love. But since the publication of that book, he's gone on thinking. And so the title of his talk today is The Politics of Love. Would you please give a very warm West End Festival welcome to Professor Jean Rond and to his wife Betty, who is here with us today as well. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me to speak to you about what concerns me deeply, namely how we can retrieve the praxis of love in our churches, in our religious traditions, in and beyond Christianity. Why is it necessary to retrieve this when all Christian prayers and liturgies constantly affirm that we love God, that when we quote from the fifth book of Moses, that we love God, one another and ourselves, that we love our enemies and so forth. Christianity is all about love. And nevertheless, it seems to me that we have to look more deeply and more critically and more self-critically at that notion of love and what it might involve and what it might not involve. Now, part of the problem with talking about love is that in our part of the world, it has become a sentimentalized notion. All you need is love, and you, know, you just evoke the term love, and then everything is sweet and happy. And another problem is that it has been an instrumentalized notion, that everybody wants to own love. Part of our Christian dilemma is that we, as Christians, have played that game too. Not for all the 2,000 years of Christianity, but for about the last 500, 600 years. Since roughly the Reformation, Christians have been beginning to speak about Christian love in order to show that we Christians own love. And unfortunately, Ashrafa, you don't. <laughs> I'm talking to my Muslim friend from Nigeria here. And I think it's very important that we become clear again that love is a gift of God to all humankind and not just to Christians. And when we Christians claim that in Jesus Christ we have learned anew how to love, so this does not mean that we learned anew how to love against others, <laughs> but that we have an affirmation of that invitation by God to love. It's interesting in the 12th and 13th century, many Jewish, Muslim, and Christian thinkers were united in agreeing that love was a universal gift from God. Thomas Aquinas, a famous uh, scholar, said love is a virtue, but not a virtue which we can invent, but something we have been given. It's because of the grace of God. It's a gift, like hope and faith. Now, when we start there again, rather than saying we own love, to see what we have done and what we can do with love. I think then we come closer to the topic today. Yet another few detours, if you allow me. 
It's interesting that at most wedding services, Christian wedding services, the first letter of the Corinthians, chapter 13, is read, the praise of love, the hymn to love, the glory of love. In one way, that's a good thing. In one way, it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing, first of all, because St. Paul wrote that letter to a community totally at loggerheads with each other in itself. Corinth, to whom he wrote, he had to write many more times. You know, we have a second letter, Corinthians, and many scholars think in the second we also have a third, because his voice was not heard. Corinth was a community in which everybody insisted to have the best and last and final word of revelation, and the neighbors did not. So it's very interesting that we read that text at the beginning of a marriage ceremony. <laughs> Our marriage, too, by the way. And in a way, it's a good thing that we do this, because when we talk about married love or love in marriage, it has to deal with coming to terms with our differences. And that's the point I try to uh, emphasize, that love is how we negotiate our differences, not how we claim sweet harmony. That's why it's good that we read the first letter of the Corinthians at our wedding ceremonies. Because a love story, be that the one between men and wife or between partners, between friends, between churches and so forth, within churches, a love story involves to walk with differences, to respect the other as other, and to respect God as the radical other. So love is that gift, if one sums it up, which we have been given from God, Christians and non-Christians alike, to deal constructively with our differences, with otherness, with that which we are not at one with. And that's why you see it is so dangerous to fall into the trap of this uh, sentimentalization of love. All you need is love. Well, all you need is love, yes, but not in that sense. I'm not criticizing the Beatles here. <laughs> Rather, I'm criticizing those efforts to own love without paying the price for it. And the price of love is to let it flourish in conflict, in hatred, in differences. I think it's very important to rehabilitate love and to rehabilitate the power of love by acknowledging it that it does best in conflict. Conflict is not the opposite of love, nor is hatred. Because hatred still deals with the other. <laughs> however deranged and however strangely, the opposite of love is indifference, when you don't care about the other or about God or yourself. Now, we have different relationships of love which overlap in one way but can, can never be separated, but we can distinguish them. And the, the one, of course, we often talk about in all religious traditions, how to love the other which we constantly admonish each other in our religious services and so forth, in our reading, in our prayer and so forth. And that's good. But it's difficult, <laughs> loving the other. I grew up at the German-French border. I was born in 55, when the area I grew up in was not yet part of Germany, but was um, in between Germany and France because of the war. And I see Stephen, who was born just two villages away from me at the same part, so we had two who were born in this, in this particular area. And it's interesting, my parental home is about 25 yards from the River Saar, and the River Saar is the border, and then the other half of the village, which is on the French side. When I was born, there was no bridge, because the bridge was destroyed in 44, and was not rebuilt until 63. And a tradition of 100 years of hatred between the French and the Germans. 
a tradition, I'm happy to say, has been overcome. Now, I have been fortunate to live in seeing how this hatred could be transformed. It was not indifference. How can you be indifferent when you're living next to each other? But it was hatred that we didn't, we were told for 100 years not to trust the other, not to respect the other, not to like the other. And yet, I family on either side, though we always knew that this was wrong, but this was an instrumentalization of difference in, on behalf of those who wanted to create national identities. I may be forgiven that I have no time for national identities because I have seen how badly these can serve us. But I have much time for discovering the other anew. And I'm of that um, blessed generation that could then make use of the bridge and could go on the other side and discover the other as other, but also as enjoyment in terms of the otherness. Who would in my home area not enjoy the food on the other side, which is so much better than on this side? <laughs> and who from the other side would not enjoy the German cakes, just to put it on a trivial basis? <laughs> So you see, on, in some areas of our life, we enjoy otherness. In others, we feel very threatened. And I think when we begin to talk about the politics of love, we reflect on what can we do to overcome that threat. And they already mentioned Thomas Aquinas, it's good for another line as well. He said, there is no way to peace except through love. And by this, he didn't mean the romanticized, sentimentalized notion, but what he meant is the tough love to look the other into the eye, to expect to see God's presence in the other, not just the Christian other, and to take it from there and come to the second um, relationship which is, uh, can be distinguished in love, namely the relationship to God, who is other, but as all the uh, um, religious traditions, uh, uh, sister traditions, I mean Islam, Christianity, and and um, Judaism confirm, is concerned with our lives. So God is the transcendent other, but not the total other, but the one who loves us, who cares for us. And we talk about this love of God all the time, but often we do this in a way as if we would own God. I have my God in my pocket, as Dave Allen used to say in the 70s, may your God go with you at the end. But when you want to take this one step further and say, it's not my God, it's God, the other, whom I'm supposed to love, then you have to open yourself to that hard labor, which is involved in letting God be God. And, you know, at this time, uh, Christians might well have a lot to learn from their Jewish and Muslim brothers and sisters who, much more than Christians, have uh, affirmed the otherness of God. But not the total otherness of God, but the radical otherness of God. God's divinity. And of course, then there is the relationship to God's creation, which is other, which we have to relate to. Now, these days, it's not difficult to relate to the Scottish weather when you come from elsewhere. But there are days in which it is. And it's not just this trivia we are talking about. You know, when you go to my home country, you will see my home part of the world. You will see so many things which you think are, are weird and, and odd. But, you know, in our tourism, we tend to try to be unambiguously affirmative of otherness which pleases us. But if we visit, if we live in other places, we are not there as tourists. We have to face up into the otherness and see both the good and the threatening part of that. And the same is with nature. You know, the real nature, I mean, having lived in Sweden where there's still wild animals, I mean, there are bears and wolves and so forth, and if you face up to this, uh, 
then it's not just a peaceful, romantic notion of nature, it's a notion of nature which can be threatening, not to speak of all the ticks which can make your life miserable. I haven't experienced the midges yet, but this summer I will stay in Scotland. Yet there is a fourth relationship of love, and that's the most difficult of them all, and that is the love of myself, and how to cope with the otherness within me. And I dare venture to say that that inability to cope with the otherness inside me, the threat inside me, is the biggest challenge in all the politics of love. It is easier, however difficult in itself, to love my enemies, the French, than to love my own messy inner self in becoming itself. And I think we have in our religious tradition spent not enough time with facing up to what that could mean. I'm not talking about therapy. I'm talking about respecting that inner center in which we Christians, Jews and Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists alike, in which we believe the sacred manifests itself. But these relationships of love are all interrelated. And you cannot, as John of the Cross once said, you cannot love God without loving your poor neighbor. And you cannot love God without loving your poor self. And you cannot love God without respecting God's creation. And yet we have divided those loves. I disagree with the otherwise much admired C.S. Lewis when he talks about the four loves. These four loves are much more related than he had accepted in his writings. Love. And I disagree with my once uh, Swedish predecessor, Anders Nygren, or Nygren as he is known um, elsewhere in the world, who argued in the 1930s in a very famous book, uh, Eros and Agape, or Agape and Eros, depending which um, translation one reads, that there is a world of difference between Christian love, Agape, the Greek word Agape, which is in the New Testament, and all the other loves, like Jews and Greek and so forth, which he all that had nothing to do with it, not to speak of Catholic love, which he also thought was an impossibility. <laughs> but all these efforts to own love without opening oneself to be owned by love are misleading in my mind. So what has that to do with politics? But I think it is very important today to reflect about resources for reconstructing community at a time when we have become mistrustful of all authority, of all institutions, and of all organized ways of living. And yet all of us are longing for community, longing for respectable institutions of integrity, longing for leadership of integrity, but don't trust that it could be found. I heard the other day that in, in Britain, as well as in Germany, the people who enjoy most trust today are the firemen, the, band, the, the what is it, fire brigade. And the people who enjoy virtually no trust at all are the politicians. Now, that's a very unfortunate situation, the universities and Catholic priests somewhere in the middle. <clears throat> and I think we have to think about that what it is and how we can, as Christians, as Muslims, as Jews, contribute to a reconstruction of society. And that, that reconstruction of society, in my mind, that's the proposal I want to put before you for conversation today, can only be one in which we respect each other as others all longing at the same time to be in relationship with us, with me, but with themselves, with God and God's creation at the same time. And how can we do this job together? 
And how can we reconstitute trust? I think the only way to reconstitute trust, um, there I agree with the philosopher Immanuel Kant long ago, and indeed with Adam Smith, this city and the neighbor city, um, can only, this can only happen if we at the same time open ourselves to God's presence. That we be transformed in this mutuality of love, which is not sweet harmony, but which allows us to face up to the differences outside of us, inside of us, to the otherness outside of us, inside of us, and grow together. Now, we have played a double game in this respect. We love to hate our politicians, because deep down we hate ourselves, because we cannot allow anybody to lead us because we don't trust ourselves, and so we cannot trust somebody else. So I think it is foolish to expect of uh, David Cameron or the Dalai Lama or the Pope will soon come into this city or anybody else that they will solve all our problems. Because then we would deny that invitation of, to all of us together to face up to our problems. So what we should do is to allow a leadership to emerge which is rooted in our communities. And not to expect a leadership who tells us how everything hangs together, but rather to see that the only way we can trust each other if we have a common responsibility for each other. And I think to rebuild our, our, the common good and the common trust in this society, or indeed in any of the Western societies, does involve that we become clean on love, on that potential of respect, of trust, of friendship, of journeying, of not having it all now in my hands, but of being changed in the process. But the only way we can embark on this is if we, come over, if we overcome our fears. I think there we can learn from, from the Gospels uh, portraying Jesus again and again to say, have no fear. Because if we fear, we cannot love. Paul says that too in the first Corinthians text already mentioned. So to, to bring this to some kind of conclusion, I would like to argue that it's a lot to be expected from a recovery of love. And that when we do this, then we can open ourselves also to the worst catastrophe of inner human warfare and enmity. And I'm very pleased to have Imam Ashafa here today because he was honored this week by the University of Glasgow with an honorary doctorate. Him and his friend, Pastor James Vuye, in Nigeria, who have been physically fighting each other in a fight in which uh, Ashafa lost two of his brothers and his spiritual leader and in which the pastor lost his right hand. But then, through a reconsideration of each other's tradition, their writings in the Quran, in the Bible, and so forth, um, they have, in some kind of Damascus event, <laughs> been brought together and to recognize that each other's eyes are carrying the light of God. And that against all the odds, like Germany, France, now Islam, Christians in Kaduna province in Nigeria, there is a way, the long way, the hard way, the difficult way, not only to overcome the fear of each other, but to discover each other. Now, if uh, Ashafa and James in Nigeria have been able to do this, we who are not threatened physically, should also be able to do this, to overcome those boundaries and discover the beauty of God in each other. Well, I wish us all good luck with that. <laughs>